So, looking forward to this today, I, I am confident, um, and I have been praying, that through this message this morning, through God's Word this morning, His Holy Spirit might be at work in this place, in our hearts, in such a way that we're a little bit shaken up, that, that God might be pleased to come and do something in our hearts because of His Word and for His glory here this morning. And so I'm trusting that that's going to happen. We just saying really powerful things like there's nothing that I desire that compares with you. And we always have to ask ourselves, it's easy when a word's on a screen, especially when you know the song, it's easy to sing it out. But is that really true? Is that really true that there is nothing that I desire that compares to Him? And that's what we're going to look at this morning as we look at Psalm 16 and, and, and have to ask ourselves that question and allow the Holy Spirit to search our hearts and say, is that true about me, God? Is it true that there is nothing on this earth that I desire that compares with you? I wish I could speak powerfully enough to convince you that there's nothing better than Him. I wish I could speak powerfully enough to convince myself that there's nothing better than Him. But we all get so easily distracted and deceived and chase after other things. And so, I want to just pray before we read Scripture this morning that God would do a powerful thing in and through His Word this morning. So let's pray together. God, I thank You that Your Holy Spirit can come and can shine light on Your Word. Thank You that Your Holy Spirit can come and convict us of sin in our own hearts. I thank You that Your Holy Spirit can come and guide us and lead us into truth. And so God, I pray that Your Holy Spirit would come and do all those things this morning that, that I am incapable of doing, that everybody here is incapable of causing to happen. We can't manufacture it. And so, God, we're dependent on you this morning to be at work through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read God's word together. If you're able to stand, let's stand as I read Psalm 16. Here's the word of God from Psalm 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because He is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You can be seated. You might even be able to see, just as I read that, why this might be one of my favorite psalms, and maybe even after looking at it a little more this morning, it might become one of your favorites as well. If you want to follow along, as usual, there's an outline on the back of the bulletin. has some questions for you to even grapple with as you go home this week. Uh, I encourage you to do that as well. I get to grapple with this stuff the entire week as it runs through my mind and I prepare to preach it. And God does a good work in me as I do that. So thank you for that privilege, allowing me to be your pastor and to spend some of my time doing that. 
Psalm 16. We're at the, there's three points on the bulletin. The first one we're going to get through really pretty quickly. We're going to spend most of our time on the last two. But if you look at verses 1 through 3, uh, I, the, the title I put for those first three verses is this, We Delight in God and in His People. You'll notice that a lot of the psalms that we've been going through this summer, the psalmist is in a time of despair or feeling very even depressed or, or maybe even insignificant. And so a lot of times the psalmist is coming to God with a lot of desperation. And a lot of requests then come before God. Even complaints like we looked at last week coming before God. But you'll notice something different about this psalm that I just read. That there's only one request in this whole psalm. Only one request. And it shows right, up, right away in verse 1. And it is simply this. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. This is what is called a psalm of confidence. The rest of the psalm is all about the stuff that the psalmist is confident in. He is confident in God and in His promises to him. And the only request is verse 1. And that's a good reminder for us that even when, you know, a lot of the psalms, like I said, are, are coming out of hearts that are just desperate and longing and suffering, even when things are going well, we still must come to God and ask Him this, God, would you preserve me? I want to take refuge in you, even in the good times. Even when things are going great, I still know, God, that I'm dependent on you to preserve me, and I come to you as my refuge. So we still come to God with our requests, even when things are going well. But we come with a lot of confidence as well, and that's what we're going to see in the rest of this psalm. In verse 2, verse 2 says, I say to the Lord, this is David, this is a psalm of David, okay? So David is saying to the Lord, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. That's his declaration. You're my Lord. You're my master. I want to be obedient to you. But then look at the next thing he says. He says, I have no good apart from you. And when I read that, I kind of thought, really, David? You're a king. Remember, that was David's job. He was a king. You have no good apart from God. I mean, I'm sure, like, you're a king. You can get whatever you want. You probably got your personal chef, and you got no good apart from him, you probably got, you, you, you update your smartphone every time they update a smartphone, right? Come on, David, you, you've got a lot. You're the king. But he says, I have no good apart from you, God. When he's saying that, he is saying something about how much he values God, about the place that God has in his life, that compared to everything else in his life, he has nothing even good And he has a lot of good things. He has nothing good, though, compared to his God. I have no good apart from you, God. Then verse 3 is interesting because it almost seems to contradict verse 2. Verse 3, he says this. As for the saints in the land, okay, the saints are God's people, the one God has called to himself and made righteous, okay? As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Well, I thought you were just all about, uh, my, all my delight is in God. He's the only good thing I have. And now you're saying, but I really like God's people too. And I don't think these things necessarily contradict each other. I think both are true for David. And hopefully both are true for us. That we look around at everything else. And we say, God, I have no good apart from you. But then we also look around at God's people. And I can do that like looking at faces right here, right now. I haven't been here that long but I have grown to love uh, many of you a lot. And I can look at you and I can say, I have great delight in being with these people. 
as, as for the saints in the land, as for you, as for my brothers and sisters, my church family, like, I, I love you. I find delight in you. And that's what we want to be as a church. We want to look at each other. And first of all, our worship always goes to God. We do not worship or depend on one another. But we also ought to be a church where we find great delight in being together. I've found that in, in my life as a Christian, I have found great delight in being with God's people at various times. It doesn't happen every time I get together with God's people, and it usually doesn't happen on a Sunday morning when I'm looking at the back of somebody's head and hearing somebody speak into a microphone. It usually happens when I am with my brothers and sisters in Christ, maybe just one of them, maybe a small group of them, and we're just doing life together. We're serving together. We're, we're studying Scripture together. We're praying for one another. That's when it often happens, and I say, I find delight in being with God's people. That's why we're doing these life group things. We hope that you will sign up to be a part of a life group so that you can grow to find delight and joy in being with God's people. As for the saints in the land, David says, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. But now verse 4. We're going to spend a little more time on these last two points and quite a bit of time just on verse 4 because David is setting up a contrast. That's what David is doing here in verse 4. He's setting up a contrast. If I were to ask you guys, of the Ten Commandments, and many of you know the Ten Commandments, if I were to ask you, of the Ten Commandments, which one do you break most often? Think about that for a second. Of the Ten Commandments, which one would you say, that's the one I probably break most often? I don't know what that would be for you. For me, I would come down to probably Commandments 1 or 2, right from the top. The first commandment is that we shall have no other God before God. And the second commandment is very similar, that we should not raise up any idol and bow down to that. And I would say that quite frequently, and I don't think I'm alone in this, that's a challenging commandment to keep. That there should be no other God before Him. And that we should not bow down to any kind of idol. Now, when I say the word idol, some of you are, like, get this picture in your mind of like some little Haitian voodoo doll or, or something like that, that seems very overtly idolatrous, right? But most of the time, the idols that we are tempted to bow down to in our culture look really nice and pretty. They're good things. That's what often becomes idols for us. Good things can become idols. I've heard someone say once, you take a good thing and you turn it into a God thing, and that's a bad thing. Okay? You take a good thing and turn it into a God thing, that's a bad thing. We know what an idol is if we ask ourselves this question. What do I run to to give me what only God can give? What do I run to to give me what only God can give? When I need comfort, what do I run to instead of running to God? When I need to know that I have some sort of meaning and purpose and significance, what do I run to to find meaning and significance in my life instead of running to God. That's how we know what some idols are. I want to point out a couple idols, and I, you might have noticed there's a card table uh, up on the, on the stage here this morning. Um, I brought some stuff in this just to, to have some visuals to help me remember a, a couple of things. And there are a number of things that I have in my box that will help us remember some of the idols that we have. I think one of them, which doesn't seem like, oh, that's not really an idol, is this. Not this in particular, but this is an example. This is a uh, cake mix. Some of us 
really have an issue with food becoming an idol? Do you think it's possible that food might be an idol for you? I mean, think about it. When you need to be comforted, sometimes we turn to food. to get. Like, I've had a really bad day. It's been a long day. I know what will make me feel better. Cake, right? Or, or whatever else. That, that, it's easy for us to take a good gift from God and, and turn to that immediately um, as this is what's going to give me what I need. Or we even take food and sometimes make food like, hey, there's something to celebrate. Like, I need to reward myself for all the hard work I've done, all that I've accomplished. Therefore, I must eat food. And so our reward is not God himself, but our reward is food somehow. There's other things that we can idolize as well. I brought my baseball glove. Uh, sports can easily become an idol for people. Uh, hobbies can become an idol for people that we start to I, don't, I brought my GPS. I don't know if any of you have like a hobby of traveling. I didn't know. I don't have a fishing pole or a gun, and I didn't know if I should bring it to church if I did. So, so I didn't bring that. Um, but we have hobbies that sometimes begin to dictate how we live our lives. They can become idols for us. For some, it's family. And I know we live in a culture where family is not uh, valued nearly as much as it used to be. And so what we want to do as Christians, we want to react to that and say, we need to value the family, and we're right. We need to value marriages and, and, and children and, and, and just the, the nuclear family. We need to value that as a society. But that can, do you think it's possible that family can become an idol for people? I think definitely. That our whole world begins to revolve around our family. Our family determines everything for us. We become obedient to our family. Our primary love and affection is towards our family. Is our family a gift from God? Certainly. Ought we to love our family? Yes. But should our world revolve around that? No. So there's a number of things. Uh, for some of us, it's uh, knowledge. And I brought my iPod. I don't have a smartphone, but most people now have some kind of device that they can put in their pocket and they can be constantly connected. It used to be that if you wanted to know stuff, you would have to like wait until the news came on or wait for the newspaper to come out. Now if you want to know stuff, you can know stuff right now whenever you want. My family makes fun of me. Like, we have, like we're just having a discussion at the dinner table and a question is asked and we don't know the answer. I'll go grab my iPod and Google it really quick because i got to know right now. And, so, and, and we feel like it can become... It can become idolatrous in that we can't ever put it down. We long for it. We feel lost without it. That's how you know if something's an idol, that you feel lost and purposeless when you don't have that thing, when you're not able to be constantly connected to your email, so that you can't always be on Facebook, so you can't always be learning what your high school classmate ate for dinner last night, and whatever else that we think we need to know, right? And we, gotta, like, we, we have this, this craving for knowledge. That's a thing that God put there, and it can be a good thing. But it can become a God thing, and that's a bad thing, okay? Number of different things. Uh, obviously, money is one, okay? That can very easily become idolatrous, and you don't have to be rich for money to be your idol. There's a lot of people that don't have a lot of money that idolize money, okay? It's when money determines uh, what we're about. Um, I brought a mirror. Uh, I don't care a whole lot about this, but, but there's a lot of people that are really concerned about their image, concerned about what it is that we look like. And we know that this might um, become an idol for us if we're looking in the mirror and somehow what we look like determines our worth. 
Rather than knowing that our worth is determined by the God who created us, we look and we look in a mirror, and a mirror somehow tells us, this is what determines my worth. And so because of that, we respond and we worship and bow down to that idol by doing diet after diet, exercise plan after exercise plan, surgeries, makeup, all sorts of things that try and cover up and, and help us to get out of that thing that we're in. Here's another one. This is the last one I'll talk about. Oops, my ball fell out of my glove there. Last one we'll talk about this right here. <laughs> like, really, you worship Rubbermaid totes? Um, no, uh, but it's, it's, I don't know what to call it, like performance or success or just perfectionism. I don't know. I struggle with it. I know that, that I like to have everything kind of tidied up in a little box. Like, like if things don't go my way, I really struggle. That's how I know that my way is kind of an idol to me having things my way, having things done well, I want to be successful. I want to guard and protect my reputation in some way. This happens for you. Like, is it good to be successful in ministry? Well, yeah. But I've had problems before where my identity starts to form around that. If things are going well in the church, in ministry, then I know that I'm doing well. And if things are not going well, if there's some struggle then I have like an identity crisis. It messes with me way more than it should. So some of us, having everything neat and orderly and in place, that becomes an idol for us. A lot of different opportunities if you want to worship an idol, to worship an idol. But look at verse 4. Here's what verse 4 says. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Those who would run after any of these things and, and, and use that functionally as their God, as their Savior, as the thing that's going to bring them identity and purpose and meaning, the thing that they're going to obey and love and trust. If we turn to any of those things, guess what happens? According to verse 4, the sorrows of those who run after these things, they'll multiply. I've seen that happen. I know that for me, that I've never, I've never been completely satisfied by any one of these things. All of them lack in some way or another. So easy to worship idols. If anything, here's how you know if something's an idol. Tim Keller says this, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, your meaning in life and your identity, then it's an idol. That's pretty simple. If you want to check your own heart, I invite you to do that today. Ask God, God, what, what kind of idols am I chasing after? A lot of them look like good things, and nobody's going to say, hey, you got a problem. You love your family too much. Like, nobody's going to say that, right? But you know in your heart, is my life starting to revolve around just this? And this is, this is my hope. This is my identity. Everything is centered right here. Is it anything other than God? There's also gods that we know that are downright bad, and we must, as Christians, immediately reject them and say, I will not chase after that idol. Look at the rest of verse 4. The rest of verse 4, David says, their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Now again, David's setting up this contrast. He's looking at what everybody else in the culture is doing. Everybody around him, he's saying, they're, they're, doing, they're worshiping these gods, and one of the things that shows that they're worshiping these other gods is that they are doing drink offerings of blood. And he says, I'm not doing that. Okay, God, I refuse to worship the gods that the rest of the culture is worshiping. 
They're doing these drink offerings of blood. Now, I know, for us, how does this apply to us? Any of you been tempted lately to offer a drink offering of blood to another god? Uh, I haven't. I'm not tempted in that way. But there are things that seem more overtly idolatrous, more, more easily seen as sinful in our culture, that other people in our culture might not reject as sinful. And we need to be aware of those things as well. I refuse to do what the pagans do, David says. And when we do that, people kind of wonder what's wrong with us. There's things that other people in our culture look at like, well, why would you not do that? Like, what, what's wrong with you? Jerry reminded us of this uh, in our leadership council meeting as he read to us from 1 Peter. Well, go ahead and turn there if you want. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 to remind us of some of the idolatry that's going on in our culture that's easy, relatively easy, for us to get sucked into unless we, like David, would just say, I reject this. I will not do what everybody else is doing. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read verses 3 through 5. Peter says this, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And here's, tell me if this doesn't describe kind of the culture that we live in. Look at this. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, okay, so, so that's kind of what our culture does. Like, that's what, if you go to work, that's what the other guys at work are probably talking about. Some of those things that just happened over the weekend, right? And then you get to verse 4, and you're like, yeah, that's true. Look at verse 4. With respect to this, they're surprised when you don't, don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. They look at you like, really? You think there's something wrong with that? Why would you not go get hammered over the weekend, right? Why would you not flirt with somebody else's spouse? I mean, that's just kind of like, that's what we do. Verse 5 says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. In that passage, there's, there's two forms of idolatry that are very common in our culture that I can't not tell us. Kind of like, like the, the drink offerings of blood kind of thing. It seems obvious not to chase after these things, but I need to warn you against them. And a couple of them that show up in that passage, one is drunkenness. Okay? That's just that's readily accepted in our culture. That's just a part of what people do. And we ought to, as Christians, totally reject that. Say, I know that a lot of people are doing this. I know that's what a lot of people do. That's, that's how they find their joy. That's how they drown their sorrow. All sorts of things. They turn to alcohol for that. I will not turn to drunkenness. I'm just rejecting that outright as a Christian. The other thing that that passage in 1 Peter brings up is sexual immorality in a number of different forms. It brings it up there. And we need to reject that. That's another, that's another thing that we look at our culture and, you know, the statistics say that one in five mobile internet searches, one in five mobile internet searches are for pornography. Okay? And so we look at our culture like, okay, there's a problem there. But then when we hear the statistics that say 50% of Christian men and 20% of Christian women admit to being addicted to pornography. Then we realize that we can't ignore this problem as a church. It's not a problem of like the people out there. This is a problem. This is a problem within and outside of the church. And so we must as Christians reject that. And we could talk for a long time about how do we go about doing that. Ultimately what it comes down to is this. How do we reject all these different idols? The ones that don't look so bad and the ones that we know are bad. How do we reject all that? The answer is that we have a worship problem. We have a worship problem. 
I want you to go ahead and write down. I'm not going to take time to do this this morning, but I want you to write down Ephesians 5, 3 through 12. And go ahead and look at that sometime on your own this week. Ephesians 5, 3 through 12. Talking about all this stuff that, that, that shouldn't even be named among us. That we want to be the people that say, okay, I reject that outright. That's Ephesians 5, 3 through 12. But here's my desire. My desire is that we would be a pure church, rejecting idolatry in all of its forms, from the bright and happy and not-so-bad forms, seemingly harmless ones, to the dark and more overtly sinful forms. I want us to be a church that rejects that. And how do we go about rejecting that? Do we just work really hard and become legalistic and say, I won't do any of those things. I, I'm going to set up accountability and do all that. Like, yeah, that can be helpful. But we ultimately solve that problem by worshiping. We solve our problem of tending towards idolatry by worshiping. One person said this, we worship our way into sin, and so ultimately we need to worship our way out. That makes sense to me. We worship our way into sin. We think that these things will satisfy us. These things will give us everything that we need. And so we chase after them. We run after them. We obey them. We, right? That's a worship problem. And the way we solve that problem is we begin to worship that which will truly satisfy. And this is the contrast. This is what David is setting up for the rest of the psalm. What will truly satisfy us? What, who do we really want to obey? Who will really give us fulfillment and joy? That's what we're going to look at in the rest of this psalm. Verse 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. I love this. Here's what David says. Looking at all that stuff that everybody else is chasing after, and then David says this. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. Now, what he's referring to, portion and cup, those are like meal languages. He's saying, God, when I'm hungry, I know that you're the one that's going to satisfy my hunger. When I'm thirsty, I know that you're the one that's going to satisfy my thirst. Those things might satisfy me temporarily, but God, I know that you are my portion and my cup. You're everything that I need. You are the bread. You are the drink. You're everything that I need. In John 6, you can turn there if you want, but in John 6, I'm just going to tell you a little bit of what you see in John 6. It's a long chapter, but Jesus says, starting in about verse 33, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you'll never be hungry again. I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven. If you eat of my, if you eat of my body and you drink of my flesh, you will live drink of my blood. Sorry, I'm messing it all up. You know what Jesus says, okay? He says, if you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you will live. That's what he says in John chapter 6. But for somebody to come and say, okay, for all these people that are chasing after all this stuff, and for Jesus to come on the scene and say, I am the bread of life. I will satisfy. I will give you everything you need. All you need to do is eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. That's what Jesus says to them in John chapter 6. And you know what they say to Jesus? This is a hard thing that you say. Who can accept it? That's what they say. This is a hard thing. Who can accept it? Because it seems so much easier to believe this, that this is going to satisfy. Because I've gotten little tastes of satisfaction from that before. How is it that eating your flesh and drinking your blood is going to satisfy? That doesn't sound very satisfying to me. 
And so it's a hard thing. Who can, who can accept it? And then Jesus says, he looks at his disciples, and it says at that point, many of them turned and walked away. And then Jesus, it says, looked at his disciples, and he said to them, are you too going to leave? You know what Peter says? No. Who else has the words of life? You alone have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Peter is able to evaluate. He's able to look at all that and say, okay, this sounds hard. But I look at all that, I don't want to go there. I want to go here. You are the bread of life that will truly satisfy our hunger. You are the water of life. You are, your blood will give us everything we need. And so, our hope, our portion in our cup is God. I can look at all that I can say, I don't want that. I want that. And that's the choice that David makes. David says, the Lord is my portion in my cup. You hold my lot, he says. And the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. There's all sorts of allusions in this to the book of Joshua. There's that part of Joshua towards the end that's kind of hard to read when you're reading through the Bible where it talks about this land goes to this tribe. It's from here to here, like all that stuff. That's what he's referring to. He's saying, God, your inheritance that you've given me because I've chosen you as my portion in my cup it is beautiful, and the, the, the boundary lines have fallen in pleasant places. For us who are in Christ, it says in 1 Peter 1, that our inheritance is kept in heaven for us, where it can never perish, spoil, or fade. That's good news. So, David is saying, God, you're my portion in my cup. Verses 7 and 8, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. I used to obey my desires for all these things, but now it's the Lord who gives me counsel. I obey Him. Even in the night, my heart instructs me. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand, and I will not be shaken. I know that I am secure, not because if I stand on any of this stuff, all other ground is sinking sand. Any of this stuff, it might feel good for a while to have the sand between your toes, but eventually that sand is going to sink. And so we ought to be people who say, I will reject building my life on any of those things and putting my hope in any of those things. My hope is on Christ and on Him. He is the solid rock. And that's what I stand on. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. God's nearness says, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. And then, verses 9 through 11. By the way, verses 9 through 11, they're quoted uh, in Acts chapter 2, verses 25 to 28. You might even write that in your margin if it's not there in your Bible. Psalm 16, 9 through 11, in the first sermon in the church, Peter's preaching just after Pentecost, and he's, he's preaching to the people in Acts chapter 2, 25 to 28, and he takes Psalm 16, 9 through 11, and applies it to Jesus. Psalm 16, 9 through 11, give us kind of the side effects of choosing God as your portion in your cup. Here's what happens. If you make this choice, if you make the choice to reject that and see God as everything that you need, to choose Him as your portion in your cup, if you do that, then the side effects of that are verses 9 through 11. Here's the side effects. Look at verse 9. Anybody that ever says living the Christian life is dull, like this, this is where life is, this is where joy is, this is where you're happy, this is where it's like fun and wild, and say that's all dull and boring over there, 
I would say from my own experience, you're wrong. Been there before. Didn't find eternal and lasting joy and pleasure in that. Have been here and seek to continue to be here to find my pleasure and my joy here. And I have found it. And it says in verse 9 that that's true. The Lord is my portion and my cup. And here's the results. Verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Secure. I'm rejoicing. Found joy. My heart is glad. All of the fear, listen, all of the fear that people live with as they try and and find meaning and joy and significance and life in those things, run after idols, it can all be replaced by glad hearts and flesh that's dwelling secure as we seek to find our hope in Christ alone. Verse 10, verse 10 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. David's saying that about himself. He has confidence in that, that even after death, he's not even scared of death. Now, they take this. Paul will even take this in Acts chapter 13. Paul takes this, and he applies this verse to Jesus as proof of his resurrection. Okay? And then we can apply this to us as well, who are in Christ, we who are in Christ. We know that just as Christ was raised from the dead, and he will no longer see any corruption, death has no power over him. We who are in Christ, we are also raised with him from the dead, and we will no longer experience another death. We won't see corruption. So does this apply, verse 10, does that apply to David or to Jesus or to us? And the answer is, yeah, all three of them, okay? And then verse 11, verse 11 says this, you make known to me the path of life. Here's a promise from God to just hold on to. God, you make known to me the path of life. You don't just lead me to the final destination, you lead me along the path. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. I've found partial joy. You can find, you go ahead, even for, even for a couple years, you can find partial joy in any of these things. Having your life all together, in your family, in money, in food, you can find partial and temporary joy for a period of time in those things. But he says, in your presence, God, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Listen, we were wired to be worshipers, so we worship. It's just our default setting is to worship these things. That's our default setting. They're created things rather than the creator. That's where we're at. That's because of our sin. That's, that's what happens. We desire to worship the things that are created rather than the creator. I love this quote from Jonathan Edwards. If you could put it up on the screen because He's been dead for a long time, so sometimes dead people are hard to understand. Here's what he said. This is great. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven and fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Okay, Look at everything else that you could have. To go to heaven and to be in God's presence forever, that's infinitely better than anything you could have here. Fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. 
These are but the streams, but God is the ocean. We know that's true. I know that's true. I struggle to believe it every day. I struggle to live that way every day, but I know that that's true. I've experienced just a taste of this. And if my choice is between these things, which will satisfy temporarily, and God, who will have give me eternal pleasure forevermore at His right hand, I choose this. Is that your choice? Some of you have made that choice at one point in your life, but we all have to admit that it's a battle to continue to live there and say, I'm going to find pleasure and joy and satisfaction here rather than there. I'm going to run here rather than there. And so if you're a Christian, and that is your desire, would you ask the Holy Spirit who dwells inside you to come and search your heart and point out any kind of idols that you have so that you might find real joy as you say, okay, I don't want that anymore, whether it's any of this good stuff or any of the bad stuff I mentioned, and that you would ask God to, by the power of His Holy Spirit, help you to turn away from that and to trust in Him instead. But I know there's probably also those of you sitting here this morning that maybe you would say, I'm a Christian. Maybe you'd use that word. But you don't have a a real understanding yet. You haven't really tasted this and say, okay, I don't get, I, I get it now, but I didn't get before that God is all that I need, that my hope is in Him, that I can only be satisfied in Him. My desire is to be with Him. Well, here's how you come to be with Him. The problem is, you're an idolater. Idolaters are lawbreakers. And lawbreakers deserve to be punished. That's a problem. That's the problem that we all face. But Ephesians 2 tells us that because of His great love, God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. We were dead in this. Just dead. Thinking we were living, but dead in all this. But God, because of His great love for us, can make us alive with Christ. And how does that come? It is by grace that you're saved through faith. Not, not by works. The gift of God, not by works that no one can boast. And so some of you maybe today just need to make that turn and say, okay, I realize I've been chasing after this. And today I make the choice that I'm no longer going to seek my satisfaction, my joy, my life in this, but I turn to Jesus for the life that only He can give. He gave His life. He gave His body. He gave His blood. So that as I trust in Him, His atoning sacrifice pays the penalty for my sins.